0: So there we are. It's 100 degrees out in the driest desert of the world. We're stuck. We don't have any water left. And uh, it was kind of, you know, we're laughing about it first. Oh, oh, I can't believe we just used up the last of our water in a water. That's kind of funny. Three hours later, we're starting to get a little bit panicked because, you know, we're we're, we're nowhere. Nobody's going to find us out here.
1: The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 302. At 836,000 square miles, Greenland is the same size as the smallest 27 states combined. Don't worry, it only took me about seven minutes to do all that math. Over the last four years, I've only been traveling with Tortuga backpack products. I started with their version two backpack, then I had their Tortuga Air, now I use their Tortuga Outbreaker. I also just got the new Tortuga Setout bag, which I'm really excited to try out for the first time. And by last count, I've taken it to over 30 countries. But I have not been able to take my Tortuga Outbreaker backpack to Greenland yet because I've never yet been to Greenland, although I'm hoping to go there Maybe with today's guest, Mike Bursick. If anyone out there has ever gone to Greenland with their Tortuga Outbreaker backpack, let me know. Shoot me a tweet, at of Peanuts. But if you haven't and you're looking for the best travel backpack, whether you're going to Greenland or you're going anywhere else, check it out, tortugabackpacks.com. Don't forget to use the promo code EPOP, that's E-P-O-P. That'll get you 10% off anything that you order over there. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry. Joining me today is the founder of the number one mountain biking company in the world, someone who specializes in front flips and who also co-founded the charity Bikes Without Borders, Mike Bursick of Sacred Rides. Mike, thanks for joining me today and Welcome. Hey, thank you. I'm more of a backflip kind of guy. Oh, you're a backflip uh, guy now. All right, we got to change that on your personal <laughs> website then.
0: I'm, I'm, uh, I'm neither. Yeah. I, I keep, I keep
1: my wheels on on the ground for the most part these days. Nice, nice. And we've got a lot to talk about. We, one of the few people that when I go to your uh, about. Page of, of either your personal website or your sacred rides. There's like a thousand things listed that you do. And I thought, this is a man after my own heart, right? He's not content just to have this mountain biking company, but he's doing the charitable portion with Bikes Without Borders. You're running a mastermind adventures company that you just kicked off. You, you know, you're doing a thousand things at once. I just learned before this that you're a kick ass guitarist, or, or as you said, a rusty kick ass guitarist. So <laughs> a man of many, many talents. I want to get into all that um, today and especially talk about the mountain biking company and how all that came about and and let's start there really at at the beginning was it you know you started this mountain biking company was it because of a love of travel was it because of a love of mountain biking like which came first for you or, or was it did they kind of grow this um desire at the same time
0: yeah so um just a bit of context right after university i i uh Right after the day after my last exam, I packed up my old rusty green Volvo and I just, uh, like many people before me, headed west. And I ended up in this little mountain town called Fernie in British Columbia and a little ski town. And basically, I I guess the the journey that led to being an entrepreneur was I got fired from my first three jobs in Fernie. (laughs) I I was a lifty at the ski hill. And then I was a, a day shift bartender at a miner's bar. And then I was a
1: dishwasher and somehow managed to get fired from all of those. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, those are three jobs that seem like it would be very hard to get fired from them, right? I mean, maybe not, you don't need a special skill exactly. How did you get, like, what were you doing, man? Well, a day shift bartender seems uh, kind of easy, right? <laughs> kind of like anyone could do it.
0: Let's, let's just say I'm not, uh, I'm not cut out to work for other people and um it it kind of dawned on me after the last one that maybe this wasn't the the career path for me, and I knew you know I left university and I knew I had a degree in economics and history, and basically scratching my head like what am I going to do with that i don't want i don't want work in either of those fields, and who knows if history is a field you know what do you do with that and uh and so that's that's why I moved out west just to kind of figure out real life and just be a, or be a ski bum for a while until I figured out real life. And uh, I figured out, you know, fairly quickly that first winter that I wasn't a good employee and and that I should probably my path involved working for myself in some way. And um, I I wouldn't say necessarily I I already had uh, a big love of travel. I did between my first and second year of university, I did a big six month trip through Asia um, and that was sort of really cemented the travel bug. And, and I guess it kind of planted the seed that later, you know, for what later be Sacred Rides turned into. But um, really, initially, it was just I loved being outdoors. And I just I I'd just gotten into mountain biking uh, a couple of years before. But then I moved to Fernie, had had this amazing mountain bike scene. I was like, wow, this is incredible. And I just I just knew that I wanted to be outdoors uh I wanted that to be my work and uh, a friend of mine suggested you know you love mountain biking you love being outdoors why don't you see if people will pay you to take them around all, the, all, all these trails around here that are so hard to find kind of scratched my head for a couple of days and thought wait why don't I try that and managed to convince a buddy to to join me and he he left in year five but um, he was there from the from the beginning and and from there it's just grown it's been 21 years now.
1: It, that's crazy. So what did it look like in the beginning? You mentioned your buddy said, all right, yeah, help these people find trails. And was it just word of mouth? Was it you going around to people in town saying, hey, if anyone wants to go on a mountain bike ride today, I'm your man. Like, Pay me X amount and uh, I'll I'll take you out type of thing?
0: Well, uh, I wish there had been a lot of word of mouth in those early years. There, there just weren't a lot of mouths to, to pass the word along. Our our first year, just to give you some context, so we got a ten thousand dollar loan to start up this business. We got a small fleet of rental bikes. They were that was before like full suspension bikes were a big thing and bikes were a lot cheaper back then. So I think we got about five rental bikes, and then um, we got a sign that we hung hung on the highway. We we were working with a little uh, bike shop out on the highway in uh, in Fernie, and then we. Put some money into buying some ads in the back of outside magazine and then it within back this was nineteen ninety six the internet wasn't really a, a thing back then i mean there were there were websites but uh, uh it took a it took a while before we learned how to build this thing called a website anyway back then it was um you know we, we would talk to the hotels. We would you know wherever go to the the travel info center and let them know what we were up to, so our first year we did a we did a grand total of one one tour it was a it was a day tour and it was one guy i had the the good fortune of taking him out, and you know I think he paid us like a hundred bucks for the day or something like that and I just had this big grin on my face the whole day because I could not believe that somebody was actually paying me to go mountain biking for the day, and it was just like this is the greatest day of my life. And, um, and you know he must have thought I was high or something like that. But um, that was that was kind of enough. It was really, I, I mean, naively it was like, okay, we're onto something here. One person paid us, and we managed to rent enough bikes that um, you know that we got through the season, and made enough money to make it worthwhile. And then it wasn't until year three when we started offering overnight trips, week-long trips into the backcountry that things really took off. And and then year. Year 10, and this is long after my partner left. Uh, year 10, I started offering international trips. So Peru, Chile, Guatemala, Slovenia, you know, all over the place.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you, what were those kind of flagpole moments for growth for your company? And, and you touched on a few of those. Was there anything else that sticks out when you look back, you know, over a 21 year, 21 year journey at this point of saying like, Oh, this was an aha moment. And maybe you realized it then, or maybe you didn't, but looking back, it, it, it was one of those things that bumped you up or cemented you or, or took you to the next level.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, there, there was definitely a very, very clear one. And, uh, you know, for the first 10 years when we were operating in British Columbia, um, it was really just a hobby business. Our, our, our season was end of June to mid September at best. Um, and you know, I, I, I'd bought a house for $90,000 and, uh, my mortgage was really small. I had roommates who paid the bills. I had sponsors who gave me free bikes. A ski pass was four hundred bucks in those days. I really didn't need a lot of money, and so I wasn't particularly motivated to like. I got to grow this thing. It was just like this is providing me a great lifestyle. And uh, um, but then after after about ten years, this would have been two thousand five now, so nine years. Um, I ended up getting a little bit disillusioned with small-town small town life, and I ended up moving back to Toronto, which, um, which is where I am now and which is where I was born, and kind of kept the business going for a couple of years and bumbled around doing other things. I was working in film uh, in the off-season. I was working for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and kind of doing other things, and I was actually on the verge of just folding the business or trying to find a buyer or something i, I didn 't really see the point in having this seasonal business the other side of the country um, and i got and I got an email from a guy named Wyo in Peru and he was running a small company doing day trips in Lima and Cusco, and he was looking for a partner to put together these longer trips. And I, I, I still have never asked him why he reached out to me or how he found me or like, why, why me, this little company in, in Fernie, British Columbia. But anyways, very much an aha moment. Um, he invited me to come down to Peru and check it out and said he'd put together this nine-day itinerary. And um, I invited a couple of journalist friends and basically he said I've no idea what's going to happen in Peru. Could be good, could be crap, who knows. Right. Either come, way it's going to be a good story, right? <laughs> yeah, come with me and we'll we'll check it out. And uh, we went down there, and that was, to this day, one of the most incredible trips I've ever taken in my life. And um, it was, you know, it was an amazing mountain bike experience. There's some of the the biggest downhills in the world in, in the Andes and some of the most amazing trails. You know, the Incas built 30,000 kilometers of, of roads and trails in their empire back in the day, and a lot of those are… Um, really, really perfect for mountain biking. Uh, So it was an amazing mountain bike experience, but more than that, it was an incredible travel experience. And because, because you're on a mountain bike, you're getting to places that are you know they're too far to walk to but you're on a bike and you can't you can't get there by van so you're getting to places that very few people ever see and having these incredible very genuine interactions with people who are just you know they're not they're not jaded by the crush of tourism um, and they're very they're still very eager to meet you and see you and show you their their village their country and so it was, that was the light bulb moment it's like wow this is you know this is marrying two of these worlds that I'm passionate about travel and mountain biking and creating this incredible travel experience and um and I just thought I think there's something to this and back then you know this uh this type of company doing mountain bike trips around the world didn't really exist and um so shortly after that there was actually a wilds friend from chile uh, was on this trip, and he said, "Well, you got to come down to Chile and check it out. It's it's uh, it's really good there too." So, I think three months later, I went down to Chile, and that became our second trip, and it just kind of snowballed from there.
1: Yeah, what did that look like then? Because even though you you had a great time, you saw an opportunity here. Not many people were doing it. I'm sure it wasn't as easy as just saying, "All right, hey, who wants to come with me to Peru to go on this mountain biking trip?" Was there? Some obstacles, stumbling blocks, you know, that that got in your way there of actually setting up an international trip because that is much much more difficult than taking people out in an area that that you know, like, all right, we're going around Fernie. I've I've done this a thousand times, type thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, working with Wyo, and I and I still work with Wyo to this day uh, has been super smooth. The guy's a a consummate professional and he knows the country probably better than any, any mountain biker in in all of Peru. He, you know, he's traveled all over the country in his mountain bike and and there's a stunning amount of just incredible terrain to cover there. So that's been really smooth working with him. Chile was a bit, um, you know, we had, we had, um, a trip where we would bike around Santiago for four days in the Santiago area in the Andes and over to the coast. And then we'd go up to the Atacama Desert. Uh, and and that was great. It was really cool. But the logistics of, you know, biking around here for four days, and then you got to pack up your bike and fly up to San Pedro. And then, and then you got to pack up your bike again. And when you pack up a a bike, like you've got to do, you know, you've got to take off the pedals, the seat, the handlebar, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's a lot of work. So then we worked on a different itinerary and and ended up working with different guides. And so you know that that ended up being one of our more challenging destinations. But other destinations, you know, we're a lot more careful uh, about whom we work with and how we set. And we have a we have a playbook that we follow for how we develop new destinations. So um, it's a lot smoother. And um, you know, frankly. Um, marketing it wasn't really that difficult. We had a we had a decent sized mailing list at at that point and we had a pretty good database of people who'd done trips with us in BC and you know it was just a matter of sending it some emails saying, Hey, we've got this really cool new trip in Peru. And that kind of thing didn't, you know, wasn't popular back then and it really um
1: the, the response was phenomenal. How quickly did you decide to start adding more destinations? Like was that something that was in your head when you started this Peru trip of, alright, I am like, I want to go and branch out here, here, here and here, or was it more alright, you did the Peru thing for a little bit and then you thought, let's add one, let's add one, let's add one, or, or you know, or was it this idea that, alright, we're on to something if we know people want to go to Peru, of course they want to go over here, and you know you just start picking destinations and finding people that, work, that worked right
0: Yeah, I, I you know, I wouldn't say I had big, grandiose ambitions back, back then about where this could go. Um, Peru and Chile, like I said, were the, the first two, and I thought, well, let's see if there's demand for these two destinations, uh, and there was, and, you know, I knew that th- then we had three destinations. We had BC, Peru, and Chile, and I knew that, and we were getting people, you know, who'd been with us in BC would come to Peru, and then, you know, maybe a year or two later, they'd they'd come to Chile, and I realized, well... With three destinations, people are going to rapidly exhaust our roster of destinations. Let's add some more. Uh, after that, ended up putting together a trip in Slovenia and Croatia. And that was kind of selfish reasons because my background is Croatian. And I wanted to show off the country. And I also wanted an excuse to go visit my uh, you know, cousins and aunts and uncles there. And I just knew it was a beautiful country. And Slovenia is a beautiful country. And, uh, and then, you know, other destinations, it's just kind of um, – Somebody suggested to me, oh, you got to check out Patagonia. Uh, it's amazing. I know this really cool lodge down in Patagonia that you could use as your home base. Um, and then in, in other cases, you know, it's our guides. You know, I was just, uh, I was just, one of my guides said to me, I was just down in Guatemala. It's incredible down there. So kind of fairly organic. You know, we, we don't necessarily have, um, I, I mean, we are a little bit more deliberate. Like right now, we're putting together an Iceland trip because, um, um, a lot of our clients are asking about, you know, do you have an Iceland trip? Could you put together an Iceland trip? It seems to be this really hot destination. So we're being a bit more strategic. But also, I got pitched uh, just sitting next to dinner, this guy from Greenland at a at a conference uh, a few years ago. And uh, that conversation ended up becoming our Arctic Circle fat bike trip in Greenland, which is kind of our wackiest and most unique trip because it takes place in the winter in Greenland.
1: <laughs> yeah, tell us a little bit about that, because I wanted to get into some of the destinations and what was involved in one of these trips and what someone would experience. But I, let's start with the wackiest, maybe mo- most off-the-wall craziest one that someone could do, this this Arctic Circle one. What is that like? What type of people go on it? Um, you know, Give us a little bit of a, of a background on on that trip.
0: So that's a fat bike trip. So you're basically riding a mountain bike with these super super fat tires that can go on snow and sand. And in this case, it's snow. Um, like I said, I was sitting next to this guy from Tourism Greenland at, a, at an adventure travel conference. And um, our 20th anniversary was approaching. And I said, I, I really want to put together something really unique uh, and crazy for our, our 20th anniversary. And he said, I've got just the trip for you. And he said, you, you, there's this trail uh, just north of the Arctic Circle. It starts at the ice cap and Greenland is, I think, 80 or 90% covered in ice. Um, but the West Coast, you know, there's about 160, 170 kilometer, call that 100 miles, stretch from the ice cap to the coast that is uh, not ice cap covered. And there's these huts along the way. And so I said, well, that's that sounds really cool. And there's a trail there. Most people hike it. But he said he would look into it for me. And he didn't really know it well, but he would find people. And so he emailed me back, you know, a week or two later, and he said, "I found these two Danish guys who biked the trail. Um, I'll put you in touch with them." And these these guys said, "Yeah, it was super super challenging trip, but uh, but super amazing, super cool. One of the most remote landscapes in the world." And, and said, "Okay, this sounds good. This sounds promising." And then this guy Mads is his name from Tourism Greenland emailed me back a week later and said, "Oh, I just found out that uh, you can't book the cabins in advance. They're first come, first serve. Is, is that going to be a problem?" <laughs> like, well, it, I, I,
1: it might not be, but yeah, it might be if people are there. Well, right.
0: Yeah. And I said, "Well, kind of. We can't really run commercial trips, you know, hoping that we can stay in a cabin." Okay. And uh, so I sort of crossed that off. And then two weeks later, he emails me back and he said, "What about doing this in the winter?" And uh I was like, You're a madman was my was my reply. Uh but then then he put me in touch with a the a, a guy there who's now our lead guy, uh this big behemoth of a mountain man named Bo. And I talked to him about it and he said, Yeah, like if you you know, if you go late winter, early spring, conditions are generally perfect for fat biking. The snow's really good, it's cold, but it's not that cold and when you're biking, you know, you're using a lot of energy. You're staying warm and the huts are all heated. So, so I went there in April of 2016 to to basically guinea pig this thing um, with a with a journalist friend of mine, and uh, that was it. Was one okay? I'll I'll qualify this a little bit so I'm not scaring everybody off. But it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Part of why it was so hard is we took um, an eight day trip, which is six days of biking, and we condensed that biking into four days because that's all the time that we had. And so we took a we took a difficult trip and made it fifty percent more difficult. Uh, our first day was about I think thirty eight miles I think it was, uh, of of fat bike and when you're on a fat bike you're you know you're lucky if you're going four miles an hour. Uh, so it was an epically long day and it, it broke me a couple times, and um, but just one of the most magical experiences just to be. In in one of the most remote places on Earth, and just I've never experienced silence like that before. Because you know, even even in some of the more uh, remote places, you know, in the lower 48 or or in Canada, even um, you you can't experience that kind of you know. No matter where you are, unless you're in like in you know central Alaska or something like that. You know you can be in central Nevada, with nobody around, but there's always planes buzzing around. there's always some kind of noise, whatever, but there it was just silence like I've never heard before and I remember on our last day, we hiked up to this point uh, it was about an hour hour and a half long hike to this point above the cabin it was overlooking this fjord, and it was the most spectacular view i'd ever i think I've ever seen in my life and And we were there, and I hear this noise, and it's like I'm thinking, what the hell is that noise? It sounds, it sounds almost like a helicopter. And I look over, and there's this there's this bird, and it's got to be half a mile away, and it's and it's just flap flapping away. And I can hear this thing as if it's 100 feet away or 10 feet away. And uh, it was just a magical experience. And then also to experience uh, you know traditional Inuit Greenlandic culture was was
1: incredible. So, uh, but yeah, it did it did come close to breaking me a, a couple times. <laughs> So that is one of your most exotic or, or remote trips, you know. Um, you have a bunch of trips. On what are some of the destinations you serve? And if someone's sitting there saying, like, "All right, this this sounds kind of cool," like, uh, you know, I I maybe I haven't mountain biked that much. Is there stuff that you do for people who are intermediate or even beginner?
0: Yeah. So the um, the, so we have we have four different product lines. So our single track trips, those are for experienced skilled mountain bikers people who you know generally they're mountain biking every weekend or it's one of their you know if not their primary sport it's it's one of their primary sports um we have a line of women's adventures so those are uh basically the same as our single track uh trips but they're women only and we had a lot of demand from women just wanted a bit of a different vibe than typically you know the sports like 75 25 men to women is the sort of the typical participant Participation ratio for the sport in general, and that sort of plays out on our trips as well. And we had women who are asking us, uh, you know, I love your trips, I love your approach to doing this thing. I would just prefer a bit of a different vibe. Um, so those are those are quite popular. Uh, and then we have our explorer trips, and the explorer trips are for uh, people who don't necessarily have a lot of skill uh, or experience with mountain biking. Uh, so the Arctic Circle trip—that's actually one of our explorer trips. You really don't need any there's not a lot of skill involved in that. You just need to be able to keep your legs turning for a lot of hours at a time in a very remote and inhospitable, uh, landscape. So you gotta be fit and you gotta be adventurous. We have, um, a trip in Peru that starts in Cusco and you end up in, uh, sort of the, in, in the Amazon. And that's a, I believe it's a 10 day trip. And that's you're biking on back country roads. And, um, just exploring these beautiful landscapes. Again, you don't need uh, any mountain bike skill. Just, And you don't have to be a triathlete to handle this kind of thing. You just can't be, you know, this is the first exercise I'm going to get all year kind of thing, right? Um, and then we have uh, a paddle and pedal trip in Patagonia. So, it's a mix of uh, mountain biking and a bit of rafting, whitewater kayaking, that kind of stuff. And no skill required for e- each of those. But same kind of thing. Got to be uh, a little bit fit and adventurous. So, yeah. So
1: if someone's looking at it and, and I was seeing on your website, you had, <clears throat> I love that you broke it down by skill level needed and then fitness level needed. Because as you just mentioned, those are two, two different things, like two totally different things when you're looking at someone and who's right for a trip. So if you are someone like me, you know, never ridden a mountain bike really before. I mean, I, have I ridden a mountain bike? Yeah. Have I done mountain biking? Not really. Um, some of those ones that you were talking about, those Explorer ones would be a, like I would be able to go on one of those. Uh, correct. Like that would be if I was in a three or four or something like that. I'm out of ten. Now, what would you say to someone to prepare them for that? So let's say I'm like Mike. All right, want to go on one of these trips? Which I do. All right, want to go on this explorer trip? You know, haven't mountain bike before. I've got three months or four months lead up time or what have you. What is something that people should do to prepare? Is it just generally get fit? Should they, you know, do some sort of specific cardio exercise or anything like that, or what, what would you tell them to make sure that they're not right. going on the trip and then being, you know, like left behind or like this sucks because I can't o- do it? Over their head. For yeah. Sure.
0: Um, so I, nobody nobody ever gets left behind uh, on yeah. our trip. I guess so. I didn't mean yeah like, <laughs>
1: all right, see you. nope you didn't say what Mike – you didn't do what Mike told you before the three months. We're just going to leave you in Greenland.
0: <laughs> yeah. <But laughs> um, and actually we're, we're – um, we're typically on a trip we have two guides. So usually there's a guide in front and the guide in the back. Yeah. Um, in we're we're starting to um, for when we have bigger groups like eight nine ten people we add a third guide so if there are you know if a couple of people that are just finding their back of the main group's pace they can ride with their own guide um, kind of thing but um, I guess in general number one you need to know how to ride ride a bike. We don't want to be teaching you how to ride a bike. And, you know, you need to have ridden an actual bike before, know how to turn the pedals, use brakes, that kind of stuff. And it's funny. We have had a couple of people show up in the past who just never been on a bike, let alone a mountain bike before. It's like, OK, this is going to be. And, you know, most of our guides are actually really skilled instructors. So she can, they, they they can take people, you know quickly develop their skills but um
1: it's like when i was in stanley park and you have people renting those bikes right and i hear i am getting ready to bike around and do laps and these people are all over the but you could tell they've never ridden a bike before i'm like maybe not the best place to start. Like you're going to end, end up going over the edge here. Or you're going to push someone else off the edge. Like, yeah. Totally. All right. So you don't want people who don't know how to ride bikes at all. All right. Step yeah. step one, learn to ride a bike.
0: Step one, learn how to ride a bike or already know how to ride a bike. Um, you know, step two, if you can get out on a mountain bike and, um, uh, and just try it out and get familiar with uh, changing the gears and brakes and and if you can get on a full suspension bike, even better, because that's, you know, when I first put my wife on a, on a full suspension bike, and she had mountain bike before, but I took her out on our local trails here in the Don Valley on a full suspension bike, and she was just like, wow, this is incredible. This is like a totally different experience. You know, it's like you're, you're sitting on a couch almost. Um, that, you know, that really, when people can experience that, they start to develop a lot more confidence uh, on a mountain bike. Uh, so if you can get out and 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 ride and just test it out, and there's a lot of places around North America in particular, but you know all over the world where you can rent a mountain bike. Um, number three, you know, cardio cardio is always good, but what's what what I find is more useful um, than training your cardio is training your uh, developing your leg strength, and um, uh, and that you know that I generally find goes a lot farther than just just training your cardio. Um, and also surprisingly um, upper back. You know, when you're when you're on a mountain bike for several hours a day, especially if you're going downhill, uh, you're gonna be, your upper body is going to be is going to be taking you know taking some abuse, and uh, people often often neglect their upper body. and see, you know, like classic Tour de France cyclists with these huge quads and these tiny little arms, uh, but they you know they're just sitting there. Their upper body is generally stationary on a mountain bike. Your upper body is moving a lot and um, and it's quite active. So. You want to develop some strength there, and uh, you know if you can throw some cardio into the mix. Like we tell people, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to uh, approach this as, as if you're training for an Ironman or a marathon or anything like that. But the more you can put into it, and the more you can train, the the better the experience is going to be because you're going to be able to, you know, get more out of it. You'll be less tired, that kind of stuff. And you know, most people um, are fine with the with the fitness requirements. And there's always the option. On a, you know, on a particular afternoon, if you're feeling gas, just you know
1: duck out and we can take you back to the hotel or something like that. So, what should people expect on one of these trips outside of the actual uh, physical preparation like we talked about in the riding what else? Occurs on these trips, and also when when you show up, is it is it like all right, hey, everyone's here, day one, boom, we're out on the bikes, or is there is there some downtime, free time, you know, all that kind of stuff? That if someone says, yeah, I love the biking part, like me, I love biking, mostly road biking, but I love biking, but I also want to get a little more of an experience outside of just the biking through this area type thing.
0: Yeah, and and you sort of hit it hit the nail on the head there. Um, for us, the the biking the mountain biking is it's obviously the primary activity but we we almost look at that as a as a as a means of the the the, the greater goal which is to number one help people experience uh, this unique destination that we're taking them to and experience it in a truly memorable and, and meaningful way so we only use local guides for all of our trips and so in many cases you know the guides and their community and their family are often part of the story. So, you know, our our guides in Peru, uh, one of our guides, Russo, he's a Quechua-speaking local, and he's from this small Quechua village, and that that is part of the trip. You know, he will take them to his village. They get to meet his family. They get to eat with his family. Um, that kind of so that's a really big part of the experience, and uh, as as and as much as possible, we want people to feel like a local while they're there, not like a tourist. Um, and the other part of it is just really trying to uh, facilitate connections between the people on the group, and that you know we don't have to do a lot in in that regard but it it kind of happens naturally because when you're out there for 7 days or 8 days with with nine other people and you're pushing yourselves and you're challenging yourselves and you're going through these beautiful places you're naturally going to bond with people and we we try to you know take it a step further with some and add a little bit of our own kind of magic and secret sauce into it and uh we want people to you know, come back from their trip feeling like they've, they've really experienced their destination and that they've had
1: a, a very moving and meaningful travel experience. With the trip that people go on, is everything taken care of by Sacred Rides as far as accommodations, meals, things like that? Is it, is it an all-inclusive package, essentially?
0: Yeah, it, I mean, for the most part, yeah, it is. So you just need to show up to the, the starting point, which is typically the local airport. And um, in some of our destinations, you know, if if the starting point of the trip is three hours away, like it is in British Columbia, our, our lodge is three hours away from Calgary Airport, we'll say, you know, the pickup is at four o'clock. In other cases, like Peru or Nepal or New Zealand, when people have been, you know, traveling 30 hours and they don't want to... They don't want to wait at the airport for six hours for the shuttle. We just kind of do the, pick people up as they arrive and, and take them where they need to get. So basically, once you you know once you arrive at the airport, we kind of take care of everything. Uh, it's going to be the lodging, and we try to pick really cool, unique local lodges. Uh, your local guides. Uh most of the meals, so breakfasts and lunches are always included, usually some of the dinners. And some of the dinners we keep uh, open you, in you're on your own for dinner because we want to give people some flexibility. And typically, you know, the group will go out and eat together, but we don't want to, you know, tell them what they're going to eat at every meal. Um, and right down to, uh, you know, admission to local sites, cold beers at the end of every day, you know, you name it.
1: It kind of We try to take care of everything there. I know this is like asking you to pick your favorite kid, but if I'm going to, I am going to ask you to do it anyway. If we're looking at someone who, in my level, like beginner, intermediate, going on those explorer trips, do you have recommendations of a few of those that you're like, Hey, these are, these are kind of my favorites or these might be the most fun for someone who hasn't done that. And then also for people who are listening, they're like, Hey, I am that single track advanced mountain biker. Can you give us a few of your favorites or the ones that you might recommend they first start looking at?
0: Well, um, on the sort of more beginner-intermediate level, Patagonia is is amazing. It's just um, we run our trip on the Argentinian side of Patagonia. So it's a couple hours south of Bariloche, which is kind of like this big adventure hub uh, in Argentina in, in the Andes. And it's all based out of this remote, fully off-the-grid eco-lodge and it's just a, a magical little place, just kind of tucked into the mountains there and surrounded by these small, very traditional communities around there. And those communities kind of play a part in the in the overall story of the trip. And you get to meet a lot of these people. Um, and... You you know there's some great biking there, but there, like I said, there's also some amazing whitewater on this trip. There's the lodge is right at the confluence of these two world-class whitewater uh, rivers, and again, there's no, no experience required for that. But um, that's a really magical experience. Uh, I'll be heading there in December of of next year. Um, and then on the for the more advanced rider, uh, it's still to this day nothing quite measures up to Peru for me. Just that um, that combination of incredible trails. And you know, like I said, some of the longest downhills on earth, where I'm just going, you know, downhill and downhill and downhill, and longer than I ever have in my life. And I think, God, we must be almost done. And then the guy will say, Yeah, we're about halfway down. And you're just like, How can that possibly be? We must have descended 40,000 feet already, you know. Um, but also just that that really cool travel experience of being in this in this land that's just you know exploding with history and and. Uh, and just people are just so welcoming there.
1: Um, yeah. Incredible experience. How many of these trips do you get to go on now personally per year? Is there like, do you always say, all right, I got to get on at least six of these a year or. Oh, wish. Or, or, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah. What, how much are you able to get out and actually get on the bike and, and either lead trips or be with trips and things like that?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I have uh, three young kids, so I have two seven year olds and a nine year old. And, um, you know, I have all the opportunity in the world. If I wanted to, I could be doing 10 trips a year and it's always good for me to get out on trips. But I also uh, would like to stay married and, uh, you know, saying, saying goodbye to my wife and saying, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go have fun in New Zealand for two weeks. You have fun looking after three kids. Uh, that, you know, that doesn't go over so well. So, uh, you know, one or two trips a year is kind of um, is kind of where I cap it off. And now that they're getting older and they're a little bit more self-sufficient, um, I'm able to go and wander some more. But you know, I love my wife. I, I don't want to
1: stress her out too much. So, you're just waiting for the day that they're old enough that you can bring them with you, right? Throw them on a bike and start bringing them with you. What age? What age is that going to be? Well, they're
0: they're already. I'm, I, I took I took two of my kids out uh, mountain biking just um, a couple of days ago on the weekend, and so I'm getting them. They they love they love mountain biking. Um, but that's, you know, taking them on the local trails is a bit different than carting them off to Peru. Um, yeah, you know what? We, we actually had a couple family trips that, uh, that we, that we ran a few years ago and it was, it was a bit of a unique twist on it in that, um, in the morning we would have mountain biking for the parents, one or both parents, and we would have childminders looking after the kids so the parents could have their own time. Uh, which is, you know, when you've got young kids, that's really precious to be able to get out and be away from your kids and to actually get out and be on a mountain bike or do something cool like that. Um, and, then in, and then, you know, everyone would have lunch together, all the families with their kids, and then in the afternoon would be family activities. So we ran a trip in Mexico, and in the afternoon, it would be stuff like, you know, surf lessons or an ocean safari or horseback riding on the beach, stuff like that. And uh, they, they went over well. They were... Um, super well received. It's just, um, it's logistically difficult to run trips like that because you've got parents with kids of all different ages and a 12 year old doesn't want to do the same thing that a four year old does. And, uh, so I don't know that that's still been bubbling around in my mind about how could, you know, how could I selfishly develop something where I could travel around with my kids and that would be, you know, I'd, I'd be working so to speak. So, but, um, you know, I definitely want to keep my kids mountain biking so that they can build their skills up so that by the time they're you know fourteen or something like that, they can be going on these trips with me.
1: Yeah, just a few years until that happens. Um you have sacred rides like like we've been talking about here, and you know, named the number one mountain biking company in the world. So congrats on that and all that good stuff. But you also have another well, you have a few other projects, but one of the other projects that, that I'd love to hear about and that I was looking into a bit was your bike without bikes without borders program. When did that come into the picture and how did that evolve into what it is now?
0: Yeah. um, Thanks for asking. Um, I think it was, uh, I think it was 2007 or two, the early 2008. And it was one of our, you know, maybe our second or third trip uh, to Peru with clients. And I had this one customer, she lives about two hours North of Toronto and, um, we were, she was coming on the the trip and we were flying out uh, the next day and I was going on the trip. And she said, I've got all these, uh, I've got all these bikes that people have donated sitting in my garage and they're in great condition and um, they're in boxes. And do you think somebody in Peru would, um, would be able to use these? And I said, and, you know, I called my, my lead guy and I said, do you know any communities that could use some, some bikes? Because, you know, I, I've, I've, I've traveled enough, and I'm sure you've traveled enough uh, around the world where where you know that it, it in, in some areas of the developing world, transportation is a real issue. People don't have access to cars. There's no public transport. They don't have you know money for a bike or a motorcycle or anything. And so I had this feeling that those bikes could really come in handy. And he said, yeah, I know just the community. And, uh, so she showed up the next day with these t- 10 bikes and, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was a comedy of errors trying to get this onto the plane and unload it on the other end and you, you name it. But we finally managed that. And I think two days into the trip, we went up to this community. It's called San Pedro de Casta, way up high in the Andes, about three hours outside of Lima. And, um, the headmaster of the local school comes to greet us and Wyo had already told him about this in advance and he comes running out and is you know, shaking our hands He's like oh this is going to be amazing and uh, so we donat- donated the bikes to him because Wyo felt that he would be the best contact in terms of managing these bikes and so there, I think there was like six or seven adult bikes and a few kids bikes and um, basically said here they are you do with, with them whatever you want uh, contact Wyo if you need you know, help fixing the bikes or anything like that I think it was about six months later, went back, ended up going back there. Go back to San Pedro de Costa. And this school teacher comes running out even more enthusiastically this time and he's hugging me. He's like, Oh, these bikes are so amazing. Uh, you know, we're renting them out to the local farmers for I think it was four cents a day. And a lot of these farmers, they they uh their, their crops are an hour sometimes more uh away from town so it takes them a while to get there to walk there and so they were renting these things that they could get to the the crops in you know a quarter of the time and they would have extra time they could generate more income by being able to farm longer hours or have more free time and which was in turn generating more income for the school. And, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but in that community, it certainly was. And then the kids' bikes, the school was providing these the – kids would get them for a day if if they, uh, if they, you know, would would get good results in school or if they would show good effort in school. And so it was motivating all these kids, because none of these kids had bikes. It was motivating them to show up to school, to, uh, you know, work hard and that kind of stuff. And so overall grades – anyway, so it was just um, – this incredible example of how something very simple can have a pro- profound and dramatic effect. And, um, so I think we did one more shipment to Peru and this was, you know, all done via sacred rides. And then my wife said to me, well, this is kind of, you know, you you've proved that there's a lot of value to this. Why don't we set this up as a charity, a separate, actually we first set it up as a nonprofit and then later became a charity, which is a bit of a distinction in Canada. But, um, so we created we created this uh, nonprofit organization, I think about a year later. We ran We ran a big event um, in downtown Toronto that summer, I think it was summer 2010, and raised a, raised a pile of money. and then we launched a project in Malawi, Africa, where we, um, where we supplied community health workers with new bikes. And these were bikes that were especially outfitted, you know, for the for the topography of that region. And um, and so these community health workers, uh, same thing. They typically walk from village to village, and they provide. They're trained volunteers who provide services like dispensing antiretrovirals, doing tuberculosis tests, stuff like that. They're not, you know, they're not doctors or nurses, but they provide really valuable services. And their effectiveness is really limited by having to walk everywhere. So um, I think we purchased 150 bikes and worked with a local, um, Malawian organization to distribute them. And we also purchased these things called bike ambulances, which were essentially a stretcher on wheels. And a lot, in a lot of these remote communities, you know, they might be four or five hours or even a day away from the nearest clinic. And if you get sick and you, you know, can't afford to get a, a car to take you there or whatever, um, your alternative is to get carried there, you know, sometimes carried piggyback style or, or, or whatever. And, um, and so, these bike ambulances provide a really life-saving uh, um, tool in, in these communities. And uh, we, we did a few more projects. Uh, we did a project in Zimbabwe and I believe a project in Zambia that my wife reigned. Right now, our focus is we're working in Toronto. Um, and we're doing we're collecting old bikes and refurbishing them and donating them to refugees. So, Toronto has a, a large um Incoming refugee population, particularly Syrians as of late, and a lot, same thing a lot of these people don 't have access to transportation they can 't afford public transportation, so this allows them to you know access education employment training you name it so um, but we unfortunately we we lost our our space today. <laughs> Uh we, we, we've, we had a donated space where we would collect where it was our collection, uh, spot and it's where we stored the bikes and it's where our mechanics would ref, refurbish the bikes. And we got noticed, I think about three weeks ago that we were getting the boot. And, uh, so my wife is actually there today with a few of our volunteers, um, getting all the bikes out of there. So if you're listening to this and you're in Toronto and you have, you know, a basement space or something like that that's 500 square feet or bigger, we really need a space. And, um, and you know, if if anyone is interested in what we're we're doing, check out bikeswithoutborders.org. Um, and if you, you know, if you feel inspired by what we're doing, please consider donating because we're a small charity and we could use all the help we can get.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you where... Where you were refurbishing them, and then who was refurbishing them? Is it is, is it all volunteers? It's all people who who volunteer to help out this charity, Bikes Without Borders.
0: Uh, well, we have a head mechanic, and she's paid, and uh, occasionally she has volunteers to help her out. Um, so that that has been the least prob- problematic part of it. Uh, you know, we have uh, we get more donations than we can. We can handle the big issue has been well, the two issues space uh, this is I think you know our third different location um and Toronto, you know rent in downtown Toronto is quite expensive, and we we can't really afford our, our own space, so we rely on donated space and that's subject to the whims of the owners and all that kind of stuff um, but collecting and and fixing them up isn't a problem it's just the money to pay for. You know, you can't really rely on volunteers to uh, fix up bikes. You know, people will come out once or twice, but they're not going to do it regularly. Um, and uh, and then just making sure that we have the right community partners to identify the people most in need who can who can benefit from that. And we have some great community partners. So um, right now, it's just a matter of you know finding a new space, which I'm confident we will, and and just continuing to fundraise so that we have the funds to continue this this program. And we have, uh, you know, we get approached five, 10 times a week from organizations, you know, who've heard of us and uh, who, who need support and say, you know, we're working with these people and they could really use bikes or it could be like a a community in Northern Ontario and um, a native community in Northern Ontario or, or a community or, you know, Uganda, for instance. So we get pitched all the time. So there's a tremendous amount of need and, and uh for me it was it was a significant reframe to see this thing that i'd always associated with recreation and, you know i would com- i would commute to work and stuff like that but i had other options to see it as this tool that could dramatically change someone's life and um and you know the seed the seeds for it were actually planted back in 2004 in northern nicaragua and i was in this tiny remote community that was 6 hours down this jeep road uh, and I won't get into how we ended up there, but ended up meeting this – there was a one-room schoolhouse in this little community, and there was uh, – I met a little girl there, and I was talking to her, and my Spanish was decent enough that I could kind of understand what, what um, she was talking about and asked her where she was from, and she told me the name of her village, and I said, well, how far is it? And she said, it's about two hours, and she pointed over this mountain. And every every day, she – I mean, Monday to Friday, she would – walk two hours we're talking about like an eight nine year old girl she would walk two hours from her village over top of this mountain and down this steep trail to get to this community so that she could go to school and um and i and i just thought you know and i remember thinking back then geez but when i went to high school I would I I would bike to school. It'd be like a seven minute bike ride to get to get to get to school, and I didn't particularly want to be there. <laughs> but this girl was just like dying to get an education. Was willing to kill herself to get it. And and I just I remember thinking back then like oh boy this this girl could really benefit from having a bike. And you know I don't know whether she could have actually biked over that mountain or not. But there's you know th- that situation plays out all over the world.
1: Yeah, all over the world. You're right. It, it's incredible that something that we take for granted, you know, a bike. Like for most people, that's the last means of transportation, right? Or, or second to last behind walking. It's like, all right, I'm going to take public transport, or maybe my car, or maybe an Uber, or this or that. Oh, eh, I guess I'll take a bike out. It's nice weather, you know. It's it's this like last resort type thing, and yet for a lot of people, it's a thing that. Can drastically change their world and, and is way better than any other option that they might have. So, yeah, guys, check that out Bike Without border, Bikes Without borders, uh, dot org. We'll link everything in the show notes too. But, um, especially if you are in Toronto and, and you're in that um, community and, and you could help out in any way, that'd be really cool to hear, hear some of those are- stories.
0: And you're a real estate developer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With, could, lots,
0: with lots of huge properties to throw around. Yeah. And you
1: could just like throw an extra little part in the basement that uh, Bikes Without Borders can have for the next 20 years. There We're you not go. Picky. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> One other last thing I want to touch on um, before we just talk a little bit about your travel experiences is this idea behind your mastermind adventures. And uh, this is something you just ran recently, about, about a month ago. So fill us in on on again how this came about because you're throwing yet another thing on your plate, right? That's that's different from the other stuff. You're you're focused on um on mountain biking and then obviously bikes without borders of the charity and then you're saying, all right, but I also have this other passion of entrepreneurship and and helping other entrepreneurs get to the next level and build their businesses in a way that's sustainable and beneficial for themselves and their communities and things like that. So give us a little bit of background on Mastermind Adventures and, and how it all went
0: Yeah it's um uh, yeah, I'll try to narrow that down because there's so many moving pieces that led to that. Um, so, um, I, I think it was uh, nine years ago now, uh, I, I was doing a bit of uh, consulting work with an organization called the Center for Social Innovation. And uh, it's, it's essentially a co-working space for social mission charities and for-profit businesses and Stuff like that, and through that, I I got involved. First, I ran a social in- enterprise incubator where we would identify promising businesses and we would give them financial support and uh, training and stuff like that. And then later, I got into running these um, entrepreneur boot camps where I would help I would help entrepreneurs build their businesses or or launch an idea or, or something like that. So, I've, I've been involved in the kind of mentorship training aspect of entrepreneurship for for a number of years, and then. It's only been in the last two or three years that I've um, I've kind of taken a lot of the lessons that I that I that I that I hand out and taken them to heart and realizing that you know I can as the proverb says if you if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together and realizing that for a lot of my career as an entrepreneur I've kind of lone wolfed it I've you know I've made all the decisions I've um, I've I haven't really consulted others and it's only been in the last three maybe four years that I've really understood the value of developing a network, whether it 's a you know formal advisory board or just ten- attending entrepreneur events or connecting with you know mastermind type groups and um, so I, I, I got involved with an event called mastermind talks, uh, which is a fantastic event it happens once a year and connects one hundred and fifty entrepreneurs together in these amazing settings for three days and then other other similar events. And um, through those events, I met all these incredible entrepreneurs, a lot of whom were you know, incredibly successful. And, um, I, a couple of, a couple of people that I'd met at these events approached me and said, Hey, I I love your company. You know, could you do a, could you do a trip for me and my friends? And I ended up talking to these two different people about doing this thing. And then I realized they knew each other. And I said, well, why don't we combine forces and, uh, put together a bit of a bigger trip together and we'll invite just some of our, um, you know, favorite entrepreneur friends. And it'll be we'll have amazing adventures during the day but in the evening we'll have these great meals where we can you know shoot the breeze together but we'll also have presentations and talks and round and stuff like that where we can really learn from each other so ran the first one in at a beautiful place called island island lake lodge just outside of fernie bc that was at the end of september um, and it was just it was five days and it was just an incredible week just really inspiring people and we had a ton of fun together we learned a lot together and and um, so I'm going to be running a couple more of those in in 2018. I'm going to do one um, in southwestern Utah, and I'm going to do one in Patagonia, out of that um, out of that really cool lodge that uh, that I told told you about there. And it's really just about um, you know cur- curating amazing entrepreneurs and and putting together a great group of people. And and it, they're pretty small. Utah will be 20 people, and Patagonia will only be a dozen. And uh, just putting together, you know, I, I draw on my Uh, on my staff from Sacred Rides to handle the logistics around the adventure component. Uh, I select really cool, unique lodging and they handle the lodging and the food. And I just focus on the overall experience and getting the right people there and the learning component of it. And um, so, you know, it... um, it's, it's a real passion project because it brings together travel, it brings together adventure and it brings together, you know, relationships and, and hanging out with really cool people. So I'm, I'm super excited about it and, um, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to keep it small. I I don't, it's not the type of thing I want to scale and be running 50 trips a year. I want to go on every single one of these. So you know probably just run a couple every year, but,
1: um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a great way to spend my time. Very cool, and you mentioned that uh that eco lodge in Argentina, which leads me to to kind of this idea of some of your favorite places, and you've mentioned peru and and that's one of your favorite places to mountain bike and things like that. Do you have other like a few other places that stick out in your mind of either this was hey one of the best trips i've ever been on or this was one of the most magical places i've ever been to that it, whether it be mountain biking or or just travel in general
0: yeah well I, I, people have asked me that question before um, and and my mind always drifts back uh, you know when I was when I was growing up I would my parents would take me to Croatia every other summer or so and um, tough and life tough life man yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and then you know I did a couple trips traveling around Europe um, you know sort of classic back backpacker. Type thing, but I mentioned in between first and second year university, took the year off and went and traveled through Southeast Asia for six months, and uh, that was really this was 1991-92, so it was kind of a it was a different travel experience because back then people weren't there you know there was Australians traveling through Asia but it wasn't really a big you know everybody was backpacking in Europe back then, and it was also different travel experience in terms of there was no internet there was no email uh you know it was it was hard to stay in touch with people um but you know that was uh i was young i was 20 years old and um and that was the first time i'd ever done something you know that, that big and uh and it was just it was an incredible experience just to travel through that part of the world i was with my girlfriend and another friend and um just magical experiences almost every day but probably one of the most magical places, at least back then, I'm sure it's changed a lot, and I've heard from people it's changed a lot, um, it was a little island off the coast of, between Bali and Lombok in Indonesia, called Gili Air. And there's the, these three, Gili Air, Gili Chawangan, and Gili Minos, I think, are the names. And we spent, I think it was a week or two, on Gili Air. And there was, back then, there was nothing there. There was just like one place you could stay at, and it was just a bunch of, you know, very simple huts, and just the most beautiful, like, postcard-perfect, sand beaches and uh it was about as laid back as you can possibly get without being dead and uh that it was just a, a an amazing experience yeah that,
1: I, it's it's hard to beat southeast asia right when you talk when you think of magic uh, magical experiences and magical places i i think and you getting there in in 91 92 way different than when i first got there in 2000 and whatever it was i don't know 12 but the 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 idea, it's so different from what you're used to if you grew up in a Western world, um, you know, in the States or in Europe or anything like that. You get there and you think, wow, this is so totally different, but I love it too. You know, it's not so totally different and all of a sudden, oh yeah, but I'm i am worried for myself or anything like that. The people, the the culture, the food... It's just yeah. I think more people than not when they've been to that part of the world will usually have the same sentiments as you of just like, hey, this is just amazing that somewhere like this exists.
0: hmm hmm Yeah. 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 My my other my other uh favorite day just on that same trip was several months later, um, in Nepal and we had we did the Annapurna Base Camp trek and, and my girlfriend wasn't feeling well, so she stopped uh, I believe it was, it was called Chomrong, I think, and uh, we went up, and we went up to base camp, and there was, you know, this big storm, and we got snowed in for a couple of days, and it was just really grueling. We had to break trail to get up to the um, uh, Annapurna base camp there, but we we came back, and after. You know two or three days of just killing ourselves to get up there we we met up with my girlfriend we we went farther back and I, and I just I remember to this day we found this little guest house and had this little courtyard uh, with a picnic table and absolutely nothing really happened that day, but it was just we sat we sat on that picnic table and we spent the day eating yak cheese and chapatis and drinking Nepali beers. And it was this beautiful day with the sun shining. And we did, you know, compared to all of the other, like, you know, big crazy experiences we'd had, like going to base camp or all these other experiences, nothing of note happened that day. But it was still the most memorable, one of the most memorable days uh, of my of my traveling life.
1: Yeah. Burned in your memory, right? 25 years later, you can probably literally taste those beers and that yak cheese and things like that. And those are the days I think sometimes when you're traveling, it just stick out as these picture perfect days that you'd never get if you were back home in Toronto, because it's just such a different culture that you never have an experience like that. As someone... Who has traveled quite a bit and uh, and is willing to risk life and limb, like hoofing uh, it down that uh, Greenland trail in four days? You've probably had some uh, some travel mishaps. Is there any that sticks out in your mind? Is hey, this is one that uh, uh, you know maybe at the time was happening wasn't funny. Maybe it was, but it certainly in hindsight makes for a great story. <sighs> Yeah, we were chatting about this earlier,
0: and and uh, like I said, it's I've, I've had so many. It was trying to trying to pin one down, but one that sticks out is um, this was the the first trip I did to Chile with Sacred Rides. So this was the the, the guinea pig trip, and typically when we do a, a guinea pig trip, uh, I will go and I will bring some journalists along. So it was. Um, Uh, It was me, uh, a writer, and a photographer, and then our two local guides. And so we were up in San Pedro de Atacama, up in the Atacama Desert. And our guide, um, um, Pablo, I think it was his name, he said, I want to take you out to this cool spot uh, out in the desert. And it's called the the Eyes of God, Ojos del Leo. And uh, it, it was about 30 miles drive into the desert. And the Atacama Desert is... The driest desert in the world. There's parts of that desert that have never, ever seen recorded rainfall in, in modern times. Um, so we drive out there and we're driving, you know, there's no road or anything. We're just driving on the, on the desert and takes us, I think it took us a couple hours to get out there. And the Oz del Dio, there's these two um, holes. They're about, uh, I want to say about 100 feet across each, maybe a bit less. And they're full of water in the driest desert of the world, these holes. And it's like the darkest water you can imagine. And apparently this water just goes down. Nobody's ever gotten to the bottom of these things, this bizarre phenomenon in the middle of the desert. And so our, uh, Pablo says, it's good luck to uh, to jump into the eyes of God. So you should jump in. So me and the writer and the photographer, we jump in. And uh, shortly after that, everything started going haywire. So the uh, photographer's camera, he had two or three cameras and none of them would work. And, um, which, you know, whatever. But, um, more troubling was, was that we, right after that, we got stuck. We got, we got stuck in the sand. And there we are in the driest desert in the world, and we're, we're, we're stuck in the sand. And Eduardo, the Chilean, the other Chilean guy and I, before we, before we'd, um, jumped into the eyes of God, we'd had a water fight with, with the last of our remaining water. <laughs> totally not realizing it was the last of our water. So we're like splashing each other with water, completely finished off our water. So there we are, you know, it's, it's, it's a hundred degrees out in the driest desert of the world. We're stuck. We don't have any water left. And, uh, it was kind of, you know, we're laughing about it first. Oh, oh I can't believe we just used up the last of our water in no a water. That's kind of funny. Three hours later, we're starting to get a little bit panicked because, you know, we're, we're, we're nowhere. Nobody's going to find us out here. And, um, and you know nightfall is going to come soon enough and it's probably going to get down to really you know freezing cold and um it it i mean we we eventually obviously we eventually got out of here I'm here talking to you but it was an epic struggle we had this uh this thick sort of canvas mat that we put down under the tires and with these chains, and then the, the van could go move, you know, 20 feet at a time, or 15 feet at a time or whatever, and then we have to move them out again. And after three or four hours of this, we finally got onto sand that was hard enough that we could drive out of there. Uh, but yeah, could have turned out
1: a lot, a lot more poorly for us. Could you imagine what it would look like from someone, like let's say there's someone at that point with a drone just watching these guys move this canvas at like 15 feet, move it 50, and all in every direction is just sand and like, these guys are never, ever going to make it out of here, right? It's like it's like a movie, right? You're watching, you're like, what is happening here? So eyes of the desert, if anyone goes out there, not good luck apparently, bad luck is what not, you're saying. Not
0: apparently bad luck, <laughs> or maybe we jumped in the wrong one. Right. We, maybe, jumped, in, we jumped in the bad luck one, we
1: should have jumped in the good luck one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you got to I mean, make Who sure knows you,
0: what would have happened? It's, yeah. It's who, knows?
1: who knows? Who yeah. knows? Awesome. Like, um, really, really appreciate. It. I also want to know what you guys have coming up in the uh, pipeline for for Sacred Rides or or Bikes Without Borders. What do, what can people expect from you? Are you adding more rides? You know, what's what's going on there? Yeah.
0: Um, well, with Sacred Rides, um, we have you know we have an amazing um, roster of trips already, but we're always looking to add new ones. We're trying to. Um, really look at kind of unique, new, a little bit, a um, uh, little bit off the wall kind of trips. So we're working on one in Iceland that's going to be um, really cool. I have some really amazing experiences uh, on that. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to push my team to really set the bar high in terms of the types of experiences we deliver, and and just delivering stuff that people could just never do on their own. Um, we're also working on. Uh, a sailing and mountain biking trip on the West coast of British Columbia. Um, and we'll see whether that, you know, ends up in the pipeline or not, but basically on a 65 foot, uh, sailing boat and going up, uh, up the West coast of, of BC and going over to Vancouver Island, stuff like that. So some really cool stuff there. Um, we, we also have this new program called our Getaways program, which if you're a mountain biker anywhere in the world and you want to get your own kind of uh, mountain bike guiding thing off the ground, we basically provide all the tools, the training. You get your own website, booking system. You can run this all under the Sacred Rides brand. You get training. Uh, and that's getaways.sacredrides.com. Um, and then Mastermind Adventures. I told you what, what we're up to for 2018, Utah and, and Patagonia. And Bikes of the Borders, that's really – a lot of that is contingent on whether we can find a space and we can't really do much programming until we can really uh, sort this thing out. So we'll see where that goes. But we're probably going to be focused locally for a little while here in Toronto. And then uh, if we can sort out our issues, we're going to possibly
1: look to do another international program in in 2018. So Very cool. Lots on your plate. Never never a boring day over there uh, in at your place in Toronto, huh? No, no, definitely not. <laughs> awesome. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining me today. Not only helping people get out and explore on mountain bikes and everything that you're doing with Sacred Rides and providing amazing experience there, but also serving as a great role model for other entrepreneurs and people who want to be socially conscious and build a business in a way that, as we said, helps themselves, helps others, helps their community and kind of brings it all together. Um, remind people one more time, if they're looking to do stuff, how can they get a hold of you or find out everything that's going on? What's the best place for them to go?
0: Well, uh, I guess um, my personal website which I do not update very often but the information's all there. It's mikebersick.com and it's a uh, brcic.com and there's you know links to sacred rides, links to mastermind adventures and the various things I do. And um, yeah, and if you, people want to go mountain biking, sacredrides.com is a pretty good place to start.
1: Awesome. Yeah. The number one place to start, I would venture to say. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Mike. Guys, we will link everything up in the show notes. Mike does have that nice like, Croatian surname there, right? So we'll we'll make sure that we'll link that uh, everything up in the show notes. You can get all that at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash shows. Find the show notes for this episode, any of the other episodes there. Don't forget too, if you are uh, looking to travel around, you want a good travel carry-on size backpack, tortugabackpacks.com. Use a promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P. They'll get you 10% off your entire order. And Mike, thank you again for joining us. It was awesome finally getting to chat with you and uh, thanks for everything that you're doing. Thank you, Travis. been a pleasure. Everyone, thank you for uh, tuning in again today for your continued support as always that makes this number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. and until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you) Paris.